Father God, I thank you for the gospel of Luke. We probably already looked at 50 passages, something like that, and you have uh, been gracious to us to teach us more and more about you through this gospel. And we ask you, you would continue to teach more and more about you through this gospel. Father, we thank you for districts that is going on and for four that even from our group have prayed to receive Christ. And the many, many teens and adults that are at districts from our church and around the state, maybe 4,000 altogether, we ask, Father, that there would be eternal dividends from this weekend, not just a spiritual high to carry our teens through the next few months, though we want that, but maybe some life transformation, some life change, some who have accepted Christ and others who've rededicated their lives. Father, for their closing worship services, we pray for them as we pray for ourselves that your spirit would move powerfully and then bring them home safely all across the state. Father, we thank you for a little warm-up this week in temperature. We're grateful for that. But we know on the East Coast that is not the case until Wednesday or Thursday. So we pray for those who are in the elements, and we ask for your hand of protection upon them. Guide our time, we ask, in the name of Christ. Amen. When I was growing up, my mom from time to time would quote scripture to her kids. One of the passages that she quoted often was Proverbs 16, 18. She did it in the King James Version just for added effect. Pride cometh before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Man, did my sisters need to hear that over and over again. Preach it, mama. I probably needed to hear it as well. You remember what James said in James 4, 7. He said, God opposes the proud, and he gives grace. To the humble, and we so desire his daily grace in our lives. I think what these verses are saying is that we need to be aware of some of our preferences, some of our desires, some of the things that we want, and we need to allow them to submit to what is for God's glory and the betterment of his purposes and his people. Sometimes we need to give in in various areas, let our pride go, and have great humility. As I thought about pride and humility, I thought of Southeast Central Church in Louisville, an excellent church, And Pastor Bob Stone, a a godly man, uh, and Dave, understand that this was a senior pastor and an associate. Bob was a senior pastor. Dave was the associate. And for many years, they shared the pulpit, one 60%, one 40%. And then Dave followed Bob at Bob's retirement. On one particular Sunday, a number of years ago, they were going to have a baptismal service, 
In their church, they had it inside, and they had the baptismal up front. And before the service, a number of people gathered off to the corner up front. They were going to be the individuals who were going to be baptized. And senior pastor Bob and associate pastor Dave were up there, and they were conversing with one another and laughing with one another, and a woman approached them. She said, I've been coming to the church for quite some time, and I've never had the chance to meet either of you, but it's great to see you, and, and I love the fact that you get along one with another. And then she turned to the associate, Dave, and she said, my son, my sophomore son, he loves it when you preach. He thinks you're funny. And she grabbed his arm and said, can I take you over to my son and introduce you to him? And so she led Dave away, leaving the senior pastor, Bob, awkwardly alone. Obviously, the sophomore didn't much appreciate his messages. Well, you can imagine Dave was a little bit concerned, and he came back a little later to his boss and said, man, man I hope you weren't offended by that. And Bob said, absolutely not. Before all of my advanced learning and education, I preached at a sophomore level as well. <laughs> Very clever answer. Any sophomores here, you're probably at districts, but I mean no offense to you. You rock. Now, Bob and Dave, they're humble people. But there are many within the church, many in leadership in the church, who are less humble. Today's text is about humility before the Lord. In fact, we're going to have two texts. The first is Luke 18, 9 to 14. The second is Luke 20, 45 to 47. Let me read Luke 18, starting in verse 9. He, Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, and even like this, this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. In Luke 20, 45 to 47. Luke 20, starting in 45. And in the hearing of all the people, he, Jesus, said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplace, the best seat in the synagogue and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows of or widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. But you and I begin with the first text. In its context, it's actually about prayer. We learn that from Luke 8, 1 to 8. It's about a widow who is persistent in prayer. 
She faces an unjust legislator and life is not going well, but she continually brings her petitions, her concerns, her desires before the Lord. She is persistent in prayer. And God calls for us to be persistent in prayer. Now, sometimes it's rather difficult. Maybe some of us here today, and my heart goes out to you if this is true for you, some of us have been praying for the same thing over and over again for days, weeks, months, even years on end, and it's difficult to continue, but God says be persistent in prayer. Maybe you're in a marriage that is not going well. Maybe your spouse does not know Christ and you've been praying for her or him. Or maybe your spouse does know Christ, but he or she is not living for the Lord and you've been praying and praying and you're ready to give up and God says, be persistent in prayer. Maybe you have wayward children or grandchildren or a wayward friend. And you've been praying that God would reach her, reach him over and over again. And you're ready to give up. And God says, no, be persistent in prayer. Maybe you're single and you want to be married. Or maybe you have a job and you want a different one. Or unemployed and and you're looking for a place to fit. And you've been praying and praying and you're ready to give up. And God says, don't give up. Be persistent in prayer, verses 1 to 8. And then in verses 9 to 14, God says, don't only be persistent in prayer, make sure you're praying to the one true God. Understand that we live in a day and age in which many individuals, very sincerely I believe, say that the God of Islam, all is the same of God of Christianity, or the gods of Hindu is the same of Christianity, or that Mormonism is parallel to Christianity, but none of those statements are true. The psalmist is very careful to say that we need to pray to the one true God. Listen to Psalm 115. I'll just read parts of verses 4 to 9. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands But do not feel, O Israel, trust in the Lord. Indeed, the Bible is rather careful to say that the object of our prayer, our persistent prayer, must be the one true God, the triune God of Scripture. So we're told to be persistent in prayer, to make the object of our prayer the one true God, and then we're told that the heart content through which we pray truly matters. And to illustrate this, Jesus gives a parable with two main characters, a Pharisee and a tax collector. Let's consider the Pharisee first. Pharisees in the time of Christ were spiritual lay leaders. There were a minimum of 3,000 and a maximum of 6,000 Pharisees in the nation of Israel. Josephus, who was the great historian of the Middle East in the first century, tells us in his book, The Jewish Wars, that Pharisees were careful to keep every jot and tittle of not only Scripture, but the man-made laws, the oral traditions. 
In fact, they actually were more concerned with the oral traditions than they were with God's actual word. And they were scrupulous to keep every aspect of it. And so Jesus illustrates this man in a prayer who says, hey, I fast. Now understand when he says I fast, he really fasts. In the Old Testament, we may be surprised to know that the Bible encourages fasting on a number of occasions. Maybe we have a a wayward child and we want to ask God to move and we fast. Or maybe it's that marriage, or maybe it's that singleness, or maybe it's that job, or maybe we're asking God to help us with a particularly difficult sin in our life that has deep roots in our life, and we ask God to break it. And so we pray and fast, and fasting is actually from sun up to sundown. Jews actually would eat before the sunrise and after the sun set. And during the day, when they would normally eat, they pray. That was a fast. And although Scripture in the Old Testament encourages periodic fasts, it only requires one fast on the year. In Leviticus 16 and Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, it's the only fast required in the Old Testament. And when you and I turn into the New Testament, we see that God assumes we will fast. In Matthew 6, 16 and 18, It says twice, when you fast, when you fast, assuming that we will fast, but it never tells us when we must. There are no days that we must fast. It's based on the need in our life and the need for very consecrated prayer, and and those are the times in which we fast, but there are no hard and fast commands. One in the old, Leviticus 16, none in the new, The assumption is we will fast, but it doesn't tell us how often. So how many times a year once? What did the Pharisees do? They added 104 times. The Pharisees fasted every Tuesday and every Thursday, which coincided with the market days. The two days in which the agora, the marketplace, the open markets, where the people would gather, are the two days a week when we have the Pharisees fasting. And when they fasted, they often put white powder in their hair and on their face, and they'd go through the streets and they'd moan so that everybody would know just how spiritual they are. Listen to what Jesus says about how they acted. I'll read parts of Matthew 6, 16 to 18. And when you fast assuming that we will, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces and their fasting may be seen by others. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So the Pharisees fasted actually 105 times a year, every Tuesday, every Thursday, and on Yom Kippur, only 104 times more than God required. And they did it in a public way, in a public show, so that people would know just how spiritual they are. It's hypocrisy, it's pride. And Jesus said, don't be like that. In addition, the text says they didn't only fast, but they tithed. A tithe is to give the first fruits of one income, actually one-tenth of one's income to the Lord. 
Malachi 3.8 assumes that we will tithe. Actually, Matthew 11 and 12, uh, excuse me, Matthew 22 and Luke 11 and 12 also assume that we will tithe. The issue is not what we get to the Lord. That's not what's going on here. It's that the Pharisees tithed in such a way that everybody saw what they put in those trumpet-shaped receptacles. There were 13 of them in the temple, and they made sure everybody saw what they put in those receptacles, in the offering baskets. In fact, we know that the Pharisees were so careful with their tithing, they actually tithed the vegetables from their gardens. But it wasn't about honoring the Lord. It was about impressing others. And God's clear. They've had their reward in full. He's disappointed. He's disheartened. So they would fast 105 times a year, and they would tithe in such a way that everybody knew what they gave. They also had large phylacteries, Phylacteries are leather boxes on one's forearm or on one's forehead. They contain several parchments of Scripture. Always Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. If you were to go to the Western Wall, what today we, we sometimes hear call the Wailing Wall in, in Israel, they'd only call it the Western Wall. You would see these large phylacteries, and the bigger the phylactery, the better, because it lets everyone know just how spiritual one actually is. That's what the Pharisees were like. And Jesus said they had long prayers, and I'm assuming they used all sorts of impressive words. Here at Highland, we got a bunch of young gum pastors. These guys, I mean, they are whizzes. And they don't try and impress us with their, their knowledge. But man, I've got, to, I've got to brush up on these words. I mean, they're using big ones now. Eschatology, end times. Justification, being declared righteous. Sanctification, the process of becoming more like Christ. They're using all of these difficult words, but they're not trying to impress us. It's just what they're learning. But in contrast to these young guns, they all belong in diapers, if you ask me. But in contrast to these young guns, we have the Pharisees with these long prayers, these, these winded prayers in order to impress everyone. And the text actually says that when the Pharisee prays, the technical language used, it doesn't come across in English. It says he prays to himself or he prays about himself. In other words, he's praying because he's so impressed with himself and he wants others to be impressed with him and he actually thinks God will be impressed with him. In contrast to the Pharisee, we have a tax collector. Now understand, we're not real fond of tax collectors around April 15th, but tax collectors generally are probably honest women and men who that is their role, but in first century Israel, a tax collector was a turncoat, a traitor. It was a Jew wearing a Roman uniform, a uniform of the occupier, collecting taxes for the occupier and overtaxing the fellow Jews and lining his own pockets with the excess. A tax collector would be like Aldrich Ames. You remember Aldrich Ames, the CIA agent 
who sold secrets to Russia. It would be like Aaron Burr, former U.S. vice president who tried to give the Louisiana Purchase to England. It would be like Julius and Ethel, the two citizens who were first put to death under the Espionage Act because they sold atomic secrets to the Soviet Union. It would be like Robert Hansen, the FBI agent. 22 years, he sold our secrets to the USSR. That's what a tax collector is like. He's a turncoat. He's a traitor. And yet he falls upon the mercy of God. The text says he doesn't even look to heaven. He looks to the ground. He beats his chest and he cries out, Have mercy on me, a sinner. And who is justified? It's not the Pharisee. It's not the one we would expect. The one who is justified is the one who humbles himself before a holy God. We go over to Luke chapter 20. And we don't have a Pharisee. We don't have a tax collector. We have a scribe. A scribe is a paid religious leader. Not a layperson, but formal clergy. A scribe is an individual who can converse in the original languages and often translate from one language to the next or at least makes additional copies of the sacred scrolls. Scribes were often also priests and they worked in the temple and performed some of the sacrifices on behalf of the people. And the text tells us that the scribes loved their flowery robes. I don't think there's anything wrong in wearing vestments. But they're to be worn so that other people know that the clergy are here to serve They're not to be worn in such a way that the people are to somehow honor those who wear particular clothing. But the scribes, they love the seats of honor, the front row. It's a little empty today. That's where the spiritual people sit. And uh, actually, I would be all the way in the back if it were up to me. They love the seats of honor. They They love the names. They love the reputations. They love people giving them titles and more titles and and more titles. The week I wrote this sermon, uh, Highland was hosting an event in our community. And people from a number of churches were coming here and getting trained in evangelism. And then often during the day they would go out and share the gospel with others. One particular day when I didn't join them, but had to get some work done. I needed to go to the kitchen for something, and I knew that the building was empty, so I went over to the kitchen. I walked in. The light was off. I expected nobody was there, but there were four individuals. They weren't from Highland, but they were individuals I was somewhat familiar with, and the woman looked at me and said, Hello, O man of God. And I immediately like, turned around. I wanted to catch a glimpse of that man of God, too. I mean, that's the title in 1 Timothy 6. It's the title that Elijah had. And when I realized she was talking about me, this this very wise, very, very perceptive woman, um, yeah, where's the puke bag? I want to throw up as well. I, 
I couldn't believe that she was referring to me. Even my mother on her best day wouldn't call me a, a man of God. The scribes loved that. They love to be called, oh, man of God. They, they love titles, whether it be vicar or pastor or bishop or doctor or reverend or apostle or whatever. Nothing wrong with those titles if, if they're meant in an understanding that this is just a servant and, and God is the one we exalt. But the scribes love the titles. They love the respect. They, they loved individuals to hold them in high regard. As I think about the text, I have three characters. I have Pharisees and scribes, they're very much alike. And, and I have a tax collector. Four thoughts about the text. First, the text says it's the tax collector that is declared righteous. It's the, the tax collector who is justified. It's not what we would expect, perhaps, there's a very technical word used in the text. It's the word for mercy seat. He falls upon the mercy seat of God. The mercy seat was part of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was the earthly throne of God. It was kept in the holy place of the temple. The Ark of the Covenant was only seen by humanity one day a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and only by the high priest. And he would take blood of a sacrifice into the holy place and he would spread it on the top, which is called the mercy seat. Why? Because inside the ark is the law of God. The very law God gave us, the very law he requires us to obey, the very law we break. And as breakers of the law, there needs to be a payment of sin and atonement and so the blood was a temporary atonement. So when God looked down on his law in the ark, he first saw the blood on the mercy seat. Of course, later on, Jesus became the final payment, the blood sacrifice. He sacrificing his blood as a payment and atonement of our sin so that when we violate Scripture and we believe in Christ for salvation, His blood covers us. That's the technical word used in the text. When this man said, have mercy on me. May the blood sacrifice pay for my sin, atone for my sin, have mercy on me. And what does the text say? This man was justified. The second thing I noticed from the text is this. Things aren't always as we might seem or we might expect. We would expect, if we lived in the first century, that the Pharisee and the scribe, that they are the ones that are justified. But they are not. It's the tax collector. You remember what what God said to Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 16, the seventh verse, it said this. But the Lord said to Samuel, the prophet, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, proof positive God likes short people better than tall people, <laughs> because I have rejected him. 
For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. We would have expected that the one who is justified is a Pharisee. And later on the scribe, but the one who is declared righteous is the tax collector. Appearances are not always as we would expect. We look at religious, reliable, respectable. God looks at repentant and redeemed. Third, we can be religious and not redeemed. We can be religious and not redeemed. We can be going through the motions. We can be doing the actions. We can know the right vocabulary. We can fool one another. We can be religious but not redeemed. It's not that works don't matter. They do. But works matter after we are redeemed. Listen to the sequence of Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. For by grace, what we don't deserve, for by grace we are saved through faith, that not of ourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, so none of us can boast. Then we are his workmanship. Having been redeemed by Christ, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for Four good works which God has prepared before us in eternity that we might walk in them. The sequence is very clear. Works matter not for redemption but as an act of worship having been redeemed through the shed blood of Christ. So when we are redeemed then we begin a life of works that are pleasing as an act of worship to the Lord. And finally... The way to advance in God's kingdom is through humility. Not false humility, real humility, understanding who we are in relation to who God is. The Pharisee prayed about himself or to himself. The scribe wanted the seat of honor and the place of prestige and loved the titles. And the tax collector beat his breast, looked at the ground, and said, God, have mercy on me. Humility is the way to advance in the kingdom of God. It may be that from time to time you and I get on the wrong side of an issue. Or we get on the wrong side of a debate or a discussion or even a fight. And we've got to ask ourselves, even if we're on the right side, what do we need to do to bring glory to God? What do we need to do to advance God's kingdom, God's purposes, and work for the betterment of God's people? And how do we humble ourselves rather than pushing through with our pride for our purposes rather than God's? Mama was right. Pride cometh before destruction. A haughty spirit before a fall. Preach, Mama. Let's pray. Father God, it's always easy to talk about humility.
And I thank you that many here are truly humble. And we're grateful for their model. But Father, may we all be willing to humble ourselves. Be willing to put forth your agenda over our own. Your purposes over our own. The betterment of your people over our preferences. Father, may we not be impressed with spiritual titles or try to impress one another with flowery prayers. Father, may we walk in humility. If there's some here today that do not know your Son as Savior, may today be the day that by faith they believe in Jesus. His death as a payment of one's sin, his resurrection is evidence of life after the grave. And for those of us who have already accepted Christ, may we do acts of good works as an act of worship and give us humility in our lives that you may be glorified. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.